Well, yeah. <laughs> you are an enemy if you retreat in front of a commissar. <laughs> okay, it cross, crosses the commissar's event horizon. <laughs> right. <laughs> for the Mundangerous Gravity Well in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Yishin. And welcome to episode 154 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how evil is too evil. But first, the rogue traders dodge a bullet in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, Sub-Zero gives enemies the cold shoulder and everything else in the Character Creation Forge. So, Ishin, it would not be convention season if there weren't new games on the horizon. Uh, we got a couple of exciting ones, I think, coming up. Yeah, we've been waiting for this one for a while uh, because I believe the 40k game that we are playing, we are running with a totally defunct out-of-print game. Totally defunct and out-of-print. The latest game for a few more days, <laughs> but totally defunct and out-of-print, yeah. Uh, however, we are getting a new 40k game wrath and glory by uh U- ulysses spiel ulysses right? spiele yeah ah uh, yeah. very german very appropriate right so they're running a pre-order on their website and it is uh quite an expensive pre-order they're kind of running it like a kickstarter but not with a public funding amount um, i think they're a public company so that's kind of a challenge to do a kickstarter but um but yeah, so like the more people back, the more things they release as part of the Kickstarter package. I don't know if you know this, Shane, but being a podcaster is a really easy way to make a lot of money without a lot of work. So I think we should just take all of the money from our giant coffers and buy this thing. As a podcaster, I did not know that being a podcaster <laughs> was an easy way to make a lot of money without a lot of work. Oh, I'm embezzling. Uh, oh, dang. <laughs> Beat me to it. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it's like, I think the all in like GM package starts at like $290 and like with special edition covers and stuff like that, it gets up to like almost 400. So it's a pretty chunk of change. Yeah. The main reason that, uh, when I play 40 K I play the RPGs and not the tabletop is that I don't have all of that money to spend. Well, actually, um, so funny you mentioned that. Not exactly in our wheelhouse, but they just announced 40K Kill Team, which is the skirmish version of Warhammer 40K as well. So it's supposed to be for like five to ten models per side. So perhaps that could um, help you find a way to relieve some dollars from your wallet. Oh, dear Lord. Okay, now I just need storage space in a New York City apartment. But only No big deal. Only five models. <laughs> I have five models sitting on my desk right now. I think I have a grand total of five. We talked about this in the miniatures episode, okay? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I whatever I can fit in my dice bag along with the dice. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah, so so exciting new 40K products coming to uh, suck all of the extra dollars out of your pocket. Um, and speaking of sucking things out of you. Hey! Yikes. Uh, the fifth edition, I can't believe I'm saying this, the fifth edition of Vampire the Masquerade is coming out July 26th. And actually, we've got a digital preview copy in hand right now that we will be reviewing for you. And that episode will actually be out on July 26th. Yep. So this one was written by Kenneth Height. Sorry, uh, who? 
Uh, just a guy named Ken Height. I I don't know. He's got like an any or thirty. Oh, right. <laughs> and for, a few games under books. his belt, I suppose. Yeah, for both <laughs> books and podcasts. Frustratingly, uh, yeah. So he wrote Knights Black Agents, which is a, a game that we adore. Um, as well as um, a handful of different supplements and modules. He's worked on a lot of great games. So um, he's uh, one of the designers that I trust implicitly. So uh, I am definitely excited to be digging into Vampire. Yeah, not too long ago, we actually did, uh, we covered the Vampire the Masquerade campaign setting um, in our campaign setting series. And, you know, those of you who listen to that know that neither of us were like big White Wolf um, or Vampire players back in the day, but we both appreciate the setting, especially because, you know, it um, sort of gave birth to like the Underworld movies and took a lot from Anne Rice novels and, and things like that. Gothic horror is the thing we're both interested in. So I am definitely really excited to see where this next edition takes it. It's it's kind of a throwback to the original, uh, the Masquerade, rather than the... What was the second edition of it where they sort of requiem they 90s did up even more and took out a lot of the biblical references a lot of those are back now so i think it's going to be cool um a lot of the art is already out um and looks looks really impressive uh, i think we're just not quite sure about the mechanics but we'll see and speaking of being completely unsure shane where are we in the dynasty unwarranted campaign so the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Dead World Malajact, the Rogue Traders and their two best companies of armsmen have located the Verza House, an ancient obsidian fortress once occupied by the fallen Dark Angel, Lord Cypher. We are getting shot at. A lot. Uh-huh. You guys are under heavy assault. Uh, and your character, Trank, and uh, the Heretic, Doc, are attempting to organize the defense. How's that going, Ishan? Really, really well. Um, everyone's really organized. Uh, we're crack shots. And there aren't that many enemies. Actually, all well, of that is a lie. Every single bit of that is a lie. Uh, we did find awesome heavy weapons in the armory. They're like thousands of years old. Uh, they are Laz cannons like they're too big for one person to kind of hold so you just sort of like prop one end up and like one person loads it uh, and it shoots like this crazy energy beam where like if you hit any part of a person they get vaporized which Uh is which is like great right like trank is sort of forgetting that like we're losing this battle because he's just shooting a new gun yep but we're losing this battle you're losing the battle yeah so the uh the artillery barrage has fallen off the enemies have begun scaling your defenses and they have breached the casements uh, they are now inside the house, and you are ordering a uh, organized retreat. That's the yeah. Right they're they're it, literally right? in the walls, man. <laughs> and meanwhile, uh, the nerds, Trix, Echo, and Flare, your Seneschal, your uh, Quartermaster, and your Astropath, respectively, are racing through the unexplored reaches of the house. They are drawn by this suspicion that there's got to be some valuable secret uh, lurking within the house that they can use, and they're trying to figure out what that is before you guys lose your heads uh, in defense. They're getting really eager because the situation is so desperate, and so they are just barreling through different hallways, smashing through doors, and Trix runs out into this new courtyard that they find, and then a shot rings out. Yeah, time slows down, kind of Trix sees this Lazbolt headed straight for his head, you know, his life starts to flash before his eyes. It's not a pretty life. No, 
but it is a life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And he is, you know, making peace with it. And then out of nowhere, the old dame leaps in, throws him aside, casts him to the ground. And before he even realizes what has happened, she disappears. Wait a minute, the old dame? I thought she was just a figment of his imagination, a terrifying ghost with a meat face. Uh, Yes, and also... uh, was haunting him, and he suspected was trying to kill him. <laughs> and yet now has saved him. Yes. yes. Perhaps for a worse fate. Right. <laughs> so, uh, that worse fate arrives as more shooters approach from the roof of this uh, of this courtyard from the far side and begin shooting at the rogue traders. But Trix is alive, which is better than he would have been. Yeah, he didn't get his head blown off right now. So they make it through a series of hallways and chambers and find themselves in a library, which is littered with uh, books and old parchments. Now, they've got their sage, the Quartermaster Echo, along with them uh, so they can make a little bit of sense of like this um, sort of like proto-Gothic script. It's it's before even uh, low Gothic um, or like old old school high Gothic that uh, sages use. Yeah. Um and being, like, not really able to interpret it, they figured this can't be it. So they start to move on. Until Flair stops suddenly and gets very focused on a single book sitting on the shelf. I wish Flair would stop more suddenly. Or just stop it all. Stop it. So he sees this book and gets fixated on the symbol embossed on its spine. A chitinous white snake curled into a circle biting its own tail. And we'll find out what that means next week. So this week, we are talking about crossing the moral event horizon. Ishan, what's an event horizon? It's a terrifying movie uh, that was completely miscategorized uh, as a sci-fi movie when it's actually horror. And then so when like young Ishan goes to the movie theater and is like, yeah, let's see some like space fighting and starship troopers and then it turns out that people's they're getting turned inside out and hung by their skin mm-hmm. he doesn't like it yeah that that's event horizon and you thought lawrence fishburne was going to deliver you he did not i thought sam neil would tell me some cool stuff about dinosaurs yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't happen that really was a like a perfect casting job to just trick <laughs> like 10 to 16 year old boys <laughs> yeah yeah it's still i still don't like to think about it okay so what is a moral event horizon uh, okay okay so like in in scientific terms an event horizon is it is the um point at which the closest point anything can be to a black hole and still have a chance of escaping that gravity well um, it's it's essentially a way of saying it's the point of no return. You know, once you go beyond this, there is there's no going back. So the moral event horizon is the is the action a character takes where everyone decides, oh, oh, I see, they are irredeemably evil. Uh, there's no redemption for this. Um, they have decided to join the dark side forever and ever. Period. And this could be because they've, you know, actively made a decision like, oh, now I'm going to be a bad guy or I have always been a bad guy and I'm pulling the mask off. Or it could just be even if the writer or the player didn't necessarily intend for it, the other players or the audience can no longer like buy into a redemption arc. Like it just doesn't even make any sense anymore. Yeah, you do one genocide and no one really cares if you become a good person after that. See, that's what I'm saying, right? Uh, fittingly, I just watched uh, *Inglorious Bastards* on uh, Showtime. 
Very nice. See, it's nice that I now know that uh, one genocide, and only one genocide, is uh, beyond your moral event horizon. It's nice to know. I wasn't completely sure about that. To, to be clear, that is beyond. That is not the line. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, half a genocide. I mean, come on, come on. Like, I'm not sure what distribution of genocide is required. <laughs> there is definitely a point, and one is over it. If people are looking at us, stroking their chin and going, is this a genocide? That's it. We're done. Like, certainly too far. Right. All right. So in, in role-playing games, though, um, there are a couple reasons why thinking about when you actually cross over beyond the point of no return is important. And it's usually when you're dealing with NPCs because you you kind of need to know if you're running a game how much bad stuff a particular NPC can do before the party decides that they're going to stop being nice to them um, or that they're going to stop trying to redeem them, right? You, you get a lot of these characters where the party is like, I don't know, maybe maybe there's just some way we could turn them to our side. And you want to know at the point when the party's like, oh, nope, we're done, not doing that anymore. Yeah, and and that's not just for um like terribly evil NPCs, right? Who have these mad schemes and want to commit genocide or bring to birth evil, evil gods or whatever, right? Like this includes like uh, goblins. Goblins are inherently somewhat evil, and maybe that alone is enough for the PCs to never think of giving them redemption, right? They just kill them on sight, and so it's good to know that that line exists as a as a GM, because you plan your session around it. You, when they see Goblin, they think fight. Yeah. Or maybe you want to run like an Eberron game or a, a game with gray morality. You already have in your head, okay, uh, players are predisposed to think of Goblins as evil. If I want to play Goblins as, you know, people who make decisions about their own lives and they decide whether, you know, they're going to be good or bad. If I start off with having them like slaughter a caravan of travelers, well, guess what? They've just crossed that moral event horizon. We are done with like neutral or gray goblins in right. this game. Yeah, you've got you've got to have those goblins saving that caravan, <laughs> and then probably saving another caravan because the PCs <laughs> will assume it's a long con. Uh, this is also really important. Uh, it's an important concept for gray or even just evil PCs because if you're playing one of these characters, you really need to keep tabs on how bad or evil you can be before a redemption arc for you isn't going to make any sense anymore. And like, even if you don't want to play a redemption arc, even if you're like, oh, I'm evil and I'm going to be more evil and eventually I betray the party, like that's um, that's your arc that you've planned for this character w- between you and the GM. You need to know how far you can go before everyone else is like, oh, okay, hey, we're murdering you. We're murdering you and we're leaving you behind. Yeah, and, and that's not just for, again, terribly heinous acts, but this gets into like the rogue and the paladin, like that old trope, right? Like, how much stuff will the paladin let you steal before the paladin smites you? Yeah, where is the paladin's line for that moral event horizon? Like, oh no, I didn't, I didn't kill anyone. I just took their stuff. Uh, <laughs> yes, and now they're going to starve in the desert. Right, I just left them destitute. <laughs> <laughs> Three kids, no jobs. Weird. All right, as it may already seem clear, a lot of this is really down to the adjudication of like what, what is enough or what is too much. Uh, whether that's you know the GM, uh, a person who's playing the PC, or really more often the rest of the party, and this is really different for everyone. Like think about uh, popular media. At what point in Star Wars is Darth Vader no longer a redeemable character? Well, according to George Lucas, never. He's always redeemable all the way through the end, right? Like well, he blows up a planet, and then like at the end, he gets to turn into a Force spirit and chill with Ewoks. 
Yeah, true. Kind of. Okay, but uh, for me, for Ishin's moral event horizon, once he blows up Alderaan, it's over. All right, nothing else after that makes sense in terms of like him being a good person. Like, okay, it's cool that like, oh, my son is dying, and like, I don't want my son to die. Great, you killed like eight billion people. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there's that. That's one genocide. <laughs> yeah. And then if you watch the prequels, I I still am like, oh no, yeah, you killed those younglings. Uh, I'm like, just losing your arms and legs was like too good. You okay. know what I mean? Like, All right. But you're hang done. on. Hang on. So Hold on. okay. So, I don't think it's fair to count the younglings, because obviously that was written post-facto. Because so. they're not even people, really. No, I mean. no, 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 because that was written <laughs> after the fact. So, he was, if he was redeemable at the end, like, the younglings can't then invalidate that. You're watching the movies in the wrong order. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm saying, okay, if you, when I watched the original trilogy, I was done at Alderaan. Yeah, yeah, so, and then so if you're look, there's that. Yeah, and if you're looking at the character, like, as, as a whole, like, in, in terms of, like, in-universe... In Looking at Anakin, then I'm like, oh, younglings, you're out. You're out, man. Yeah, but so where does the free will come into this, right? Because, like, at the point that that was written, the dark side was sort of seducing Anakin and, and sort of driving that particularly evil behavior, right? It wasn't really Anakin who was doing that. And see, that's a really good point. I think we'll get into that a little more deeply later, but there are always mitigating circumstances. Right. Sometimes. Right. Like... Maybe it was it was the succubus. It wasn't me. Yeah, it was the ex- succubus. Exactly. You know, if you're in the thrall of the mind flayer, is it really your fault if you do bad things when you're just a puppet? That's but what I'm saying. There's always a secret mind flayer. I suppose that is a very liberal interpretation of the dark side, though. <laughs> <laughs> you're not in control of your own self. Yeah, yeah. Palpatine's a mind flayer. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> To bring it back to the character perspective and not just the audience perspective, right? Like, it's very dependent on the alignment of the other characters and how it compares to what they would do in that situation. Yeah, to take it back to our, like, rogue and paladin, um, if the rogue is just stealing their stuff and leaving people destitute, a certain paladin might be like, okay, this is not worth killing the rogue over, but, like, I'm going to bring them to justice. A different paladin who's like, uh, someone stole all of my family's stuff and we were destitute, and then, like, the rest of my family died until I was taken in by the church, might be like, hey, guess what? Now I'm definitely murdering you. Yeah, and then uh, an even more pacifistic character might say, rather than addressing the rogue in a way that's going to hurt the rogue, might simply kind of try to make up for it behind the scenes, right? Like, make the family whole, or whatever it is that the rogue is doing that's so bad. Yeah, exactly. Like, the neutral monk might just be like, all right, I give you more of my stuff, and then treat the rogue with an eye roll. Right. I feel like a lot of this, um, a lot of its characters sort of compare the actions of uh, other characters, whether they're NPCs um, or other players, sort of to what uh, actions they would take in the same situation. I sort of think of it like the speed limit. You know, you're driving and you drive at a particular speed and anyone who's driving slower than you, you eye roll and you're like, oh, you know, you could be doing so much more. And anyone who goes just a tiny bit faster than you is like, oh, my God, you're insane. What's wrong with you? You should go to jail. I think the moral event horizon is sort of the same the same thing. If you're like gooder than me, fine, whatever. You know, you're you're goody two shoes. As soon as you do one thing I would not do, I judge you and say, oh, oh, that is beyond the pale. I'm sorry, my friend. Like, you're done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> is that just is that just me is it just me <laughs> seems... look 
for the record, I would not have blown up Alderaan. <laughs> I just I just like that you uh you will never hold yourself to a higher standard. I appreciate that about you. You're very welcome. You I, al- I always hold yourself killed... to the lowest common denominator. <laughs> Look, I would have killed like three younglings before I was yeah. like, hold on a second. Never aspire to be better. Great. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, another thing that drives this is not simply the characters in the audience, but also the conventions and tropes of the genre itself. So the tone and setting of your game are also going to inform this. Yeah, if you're playing a a game set in the DC Comics universe, uh, killing one person, no matter how evil they are, is probably like past the line for most superheroes. You know, Batman won't kill the Joker, even though, let's be honest, the Joker totally deserves it, which is why Batman is neutral evil. That's why he's evil, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Refuses to deal with evil reasonably. He deserves death. In contrast, Warhammer 40k uh, has a pretty broad base for how evil you can be in the name of the Imperium. Uh, Doesn't care so much for those Xeno species or chaos cultists or even the risk of chaos. Um, May draw a line at cannibalism, I don't know. Yeah, 40k is interesting because it's like if you're not committing genocide, then you have crossed the moral event horizon because you have let chaos go loose. Right, yeah. And yeah, I guess we'll get we'll get to this later in our 40k game. But yeah, we had a nice moment where it was like, yeah, we'll sell terrible things and we'll, we'll do arms deals, but eating people. Yeah, <laughs> which is funny because I, <laughs> I I don't actually think cannibalism is a particularly like evil piece of uh, of like 40k lore. It's <laughs> like, good to know about you. I I mean, there is at least one example in. Uh, in the Abnetverse, where uh, non-chaos cultists were forced to cannibalism, the Urdeshi people had to uh, resort to cannibalism to survive during chaos occupation. I mean, a succubus made them do it, right? I mean, that's <laughs> the best they could do. That was the whole problem at, like, Ancreon Sextus or whatever, right? When Wilder was commanded? Anyway, no, no, more, no more Gaunt's ghosts. <laughs> Look, sometimes eating people is okay. Usually it is not. Yeah, I, totally a genre convention thing, right? Because like a lot of times in post-apocalyptic settings, um, that is a hard limit, right? Like you never resort to cannibalism in a post-apocalyptic setting, or you become one of the crazy mindless people. Yeah, but if you're in like a is a survivalist setting, like alive, right? You know, you crash land in the Andes, and these people are already dead. Yeah, you eat them because that's how you survive, and right. that's the sort of that's the genre convention that makes you go, "Oh, wow, this is dire circumstances." Right. Um, in in a setting like Dragon Ball Z, which is like crazy over the top anime, uh, you can undo a genocide, right? Like someone can kill literally every single person on planet Earth. Totally happened, and then everyone can just be wished back to life. So like, it's not. I don't know. Can you forgive the person who did that? Sure. Why not? Everyone's alive and no worse for wear, except for PTSD, I suppose. So what about the players at the table? How do they inform the moral event horizon? I think when I think about our table, to me, it's almost like they're pretty much everything in determining how how far is too far, right? Because I think our table... uh, is very open to maybe doing things for the greater good or maybe looking the other way while something bad is happening. You know, we we have a table where um, at the end of the Morning Glory campaign, Bastion 
betrays the party and therefore betrays uh, what sixty percent of the multiverse. And like even now, I think Brand, like you, are the only one who's like, oh, we shouldn't like raise him from the dead. <laughs> Everyone else is like, well, I think we can give him a chance. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Go ahead and vote on which way you see that one being correct. <laughs> really don't understand why I have to smite the rest of the party too. <laughs> but yeah, some tables, you know, really want to play heroic games. Uh and so like the event horizon may be sort of much lower, right? Like one um one murder Right, like one unreasonable killing is enough to be like, uh, I don't even even know what you're doing here. Like, you can't be, you can't be like, in this game anymore. Not as like a player, but like you know, in character. Yeah. Another thing to consider is, I guess, what I might call distance. Um, and this is a very human thing. Like the the time and place in which an atrocity happens, uh, really informs the way that people feel about it, whether that's the player or like the the character within the game. So did the bad thing that this person did, did that happen to people who are very far away or did it happen a long time ago? Um, or maybe like it was pervasive. It happened on like this mass scale, but it happened to people that the party doesn't know, like these faceless people that they can't really identify with. It's a lot easier to get sort of worked up over one transgression that is against a single person that the PCs actually care about. Uh, than it is uh, about a large group of people that they don't know anything about. Yeah, it's like it's like narrative proximity, right? Like if it if it's front and center in the narrative, then it becomes very important and visceral to the players and their characters. If it happens in the background of the setting or or kind of off camera, then they tend to care a little bit less. Yeah, it's something to consider when you're actually trying to get a rise out of your party. Is that you can have someone who's committed war crimes far away. Uh, and it's possible that they just don't care. But if they treat a friend of the party poorly or a family member of the party poorly or, you know, kill them, um, that might be all that you need to, for them to have an undying hatred for this person. And, you know, suddenly they're the BBEG. Right. Um, I've been watching Handmaid's Tale, uh, which is really difficult <laughs> because it's too real. Um, but so no spoilers, but there's a character that like uh, is instrumental in sort of building this fascist society where women are uh, chattel slaves, right? And I see a lot of like talk online where people are like, oh, I'm really hoping for like a redemption arc. I'm really excited to like see them, um, you know, realize that they're wrong. And I'm just like, nah, nah. Okay, you can realize that you're wrong at this point, but like you set up Nazi Germany and built concentration camps. Like, I don't care if you have like, uh, an epiphany about like how you're a bad person, you know, like you grow into Nuremberg. Okay. And I mentioned before, but it's really important. I think for verisimilitude, if you as a GM have a redemption arc planned for a particular character, you need to make sure that they have not crossed the event horizon earlier inadvertently. And you need to gauge whether or not your players think they have because otherwise you know you've got redemption arc set up in in act three and you're gonna have a player be like wait a minute wait a minute are we forgetting what they did like back in town are you kidding me no like we they have to die yeah and the flip side is true too if you want to ensure that a uh a villain is over that line right that you aren't forgetting and, and this is less of a bbeg but more of just a general bad person right like you want to remind the 
the players themselves pretty often of what it is they've done and why they're bad, right? You kind of shut down the, uh, the optimistic players wanting redemption by, you know, introducing them as uh, Malik the butcher. No one's going to pretend that guy is, uh, is redeemable as opposed to Malik, the guy from that town that you were in like six weeks ago. Malik, like the butcher who has a shop next to the baker and the candlestick maker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's an unfortunate moniker. I, I get a lot of flack for it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to deal with the event horizon in different ways when you're dealing with NPCs or PCs. So let's talk about NPCs a bit. Uh, it's always really interesting to have NPCs in your game whose motives are unknown um, or maybe a little inscrutable to the party. You know, are they on the party side? Are they evil? Are they just a selfish person? And there are a couple different paths to take with this. So you can do the slow reveal of evil that definitely exists, right? You've got this evil character, uh, but the party doesn't necessarily know it yet. So the the crossing of the event horizon like has occurred in the background. The party doesn't know, and you're just slowly revealing it to them. This is nice if the BBEG is hiding in plain sight, you know? Turns out it was the mayor all along. Uh, Or, you know, if they befriend the party and are betraying them later. You want to slowly escalate their deeds. You know, maybe they do something that's questionable. But if you move too quickly, you end up like this with this caricature of a villain. Like, ah, ha, 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 I tied someone to the railroad tracks. Like, of course I'm evil, aren't you? You're so stupid. Or there's no mystery. Yeah. Uh, You can also pull it where a a character is known to be bad but not how bad right like you figure that the mafia boss isn't a great guy you don't figure that he's planning to um you know blow up a dirty nuke in the middle of manhattan yeah that's that's exactly it like if you if the game is that you're playing private investigators like your first thought is not okay let's go in guns blazing and like kill the, the mafia boss and like his entire crew Unless he's planning to detonate a dirty nuke, in which case maybe you definitely would do that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and in order to sort of build this this suspense or this mystery, you want to be giving the character plausible deniability for any actions that may seem like they do cross the event horizon. Um, maybe there's extenuating circumstances. I mean, we've already talked about the succubi, but in a more modern setting, it could be like a legal defense. It was a, a fit of passion, um, temporary insanity or something like that. Um, It might even be something that the party totally is on board with and and even wants to help out with, like revenge, you know? I am going to go kill this person because they killed my family member. And I think a a lot of PCs would be like, yeah, of course, we will help you in this just cause until, you know, you find the person and they're like, well, I'm going to torture them first. Right. Right. (laughs) Uh, Revenge can be another motivator that uh, PCs might be able to identify with and forgive. Um, Certainly plenty of adventurers are just out there for revenge (laughs) so it should hit close to home and another nice cover is just incompetence you know yes a terrible thing happened but i didn't mean for it to happen i'm just an idiot yeah that can be a little tough to sell but always (laughs) always a good hail mary (laughs) Uh, so whatever actions the the this character is taking you want to make sure that someone gets hurt uh maybe it's not the pcs right away right like if they're selfish uh players or sorry uh, selfish party members then it may be that they only really react once something bad happens to them so you can build it up by having bad things happen to people they don't know people far away so that when something actually does happen 
hopefully the, the party sort of feels a bit culpable, like they didn't do anything when it wasn't directly affecting them, and now bad things are happening. So an alternate path for villainy is the sudden betrayal. It's always inevitable. Yeah, I mean, anyone who makes a friend is eventually going to make an enemy out of that friend. Yeah, you either die a friend or you live long enough to become the enemy. Right. <laughs> so when this happens, you sort of want it to be like a guillotine, right? You, you want whatever action uh, crosses the event horizon, like whatever they're doing, you want it to be strong enough that there is no one in the party who's questioning the motives uh, or like the vileness of the act. There's no one who's going, oh, maybe they had a good reason for this. It's just, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. And that's awful. Yeah, and this sudden does not necessarily mean, like, unpredictable. A lot of times, like, a relationship frays, right? Like, you maybe you start out, like, as, as former companions or party members, or, or maybe they were, like, an NPC hireling or something, right? And then they you, you, that relationship slowly deteriorates. Like, you, you start to kind of struggle to continue to associate with them, and then eventually they finally cross that moral event horizon, and there's just no comeback. And that's a sudden feeling, even though like it was kind of marching down a path. It wasn't a surprise, but it was sudden. Yeah, it can even put into context previous things that happened that didn't seem like big deals at the time. But now, in the context of the sudden betrayal, it's, oh, this wasn't actually that sudden. We just didn't see it coming. Right. And then usually when you do this, you're going you're gonna to use a monologue. Right, like no one ever pulls the betrayal without kind of going through that overwrought monologue of "ha ha, I'm so much smarter than you," and look at my plan all falling into place. And by the way, if you were to somehow stop me, it would be by targeting this linchpin in my operation. <laughs> right, like I need you to know why I'm doing this. Also, because like the GM needs you to know why I'm doing this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you can dress this up. You know, you need to convey this information. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a Bond villain, like, give me two minutes to talk about this. You know, I, um, I just don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Just, just, you're the GM. Do your monologue. It's awesome. <laughs> no, so, so if you're not going to use the monologue, right? Like, what else could you do? You can have them leave clues, right? Like, uh, if you can find a way to let the PCs figure it out on their own when this character isn't isn't there because of, like, the actions that have occurred, um, they can see the the chaos or the damage left behind. Or you can have another NPC just, just explain it in the same way, but you don't have, like, the cacklingly evil person standing there. You can just have the NPC be like, oh, my God, like... The witness. Yeah. Barry's a cyborg. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And and if you've got, like, really smart players, they may maybe figure it out on their own, and that's great. And if there's anything left, then you have the NPC explain. And if they just do not get it, then, yeah, you bring in the NPC, and they can explain it, or you can monologue, whatever you want. Or, you know, you can use, um, like, intelligence checks or insight or some, something like that to uh, to give a little, like, GM prompting. <laughs> like, here's what happened. This is what your PCs understand. Like, here are the pieces that they put together. Right, without you actually, like, in character having to give a monologue. Right. So it's also possible that you want to get really close to the event horizon, but you don't want to cross it. Because what you're really looking for is a, re a redemption arc. And I would say, when you're trying to do this, the first thing you really want to make sure you've got is buy-in from the players. If you have a party who isn't interested in helping someone be the best version of themselves, or, like, get, you know, handing out forgiveness, if they just want to, like, kick indoors and take stuff, don't do the redemption arc. So get that buy-in, whether it's through, you know, some parameters within the story that indicate that this person is important, prophecy is a great excuse, or um, maybe like, 
you know, the heir to uh, a seat of power or something like that. You can't just outright kill them. You need to redeem them. You need to make them see the wrongness of their ways. Yeah, or they know the party, they're a family member or a friend or someone from a backstory. Right. Well, a nice way to do this is Schrodinger's villain. You don't necessarily need to have planned out whether this character redeems himself or not. Because you want to give the the characters agency. So make the decision dependent on the player actions, right? You've got that like final confrontation. So the villain is always walking the line. Like, uh, am I going to finally cross over to the dark side? Like I'm doing bad things, but I'm still not, I'm still kind of redeemable. So great. Have the confrontation and the party gets to like be really persuasive or threatening or like caring or sneaky and, and lie, whatever they decide to do. And if they're successful, if they're good at this and roll well enough and role play well enough, then yeah, the character does what the party wants and like is redeemed. And if they screw it up or make a bad decision, then, you know, go screw. I'm going dark side, baby. Yeah, I I actually would say that almost every villain should be a Schrodinger's villain. And even to the point that like a BBEG, right? Because ultimately, if the party wants to do this, wants to redeem them rather than kill them, very, very few villains and stories are going to be worse off for having tried, you know, and they might fail and end up having to kill them and that's fine. But like, it's a pretty hard line to draw as the GM to say that there is just no way that you would even think to attempt to redeem somebody. What if they've committed one genocide? I mean, that's where I draw the line. <laughs> <laughs> like, and and maybe it's possible that the difficulty is just very, very high to try and redeem somebody who is willing to do that, <laughs> right? But uh, but but part of the event horizon, it's less about what they're capable of doing. Like, it's it's potentially possible that somebody who was once able to commit genocide is now able to become a fully good, you know, inscrutably good person. I'm just not willing to let them. <laughs> like, that's what the moral event horizon is, right? It's it's the justice aspect of the uh, of the irredeemable act, not the actual like factual redeemability. See, I actually totally agree with you on like the the let them try because I love the role playing opportunities that even that trying to redeem even someone so awful that they have committed genocide opens up, yeah. right? Um, Especially in in a game where, you know, there are things like resurrection and you have immortal souls that, you know, like go to higher or lower planes and things like that, you know. Um, and also it sets up the opportunity for the BBEG to really prove that they're a terrible person and still screw over the party because they let them live. Yeah. And, and I mean, also, you can get into this thing where the party can win and redeem the evil villain, make them see that they are wrong but then also see that they've crossed their own moral event horizon, right? Like you've moved the, uh, you've moved the goalposts such that now they, they have recognized they're the villain and they're no longer willing to deal with themselves. Right. So you get that kind of like pleading for justice or I mean, suicide or, or, uh, you know, righteous sacrifice or something like that in the name of good as your act of redemption as a villain. Yeah, it's not an either or. It's not like I succeed and am, and am evil uh, or like I'm good and now I join the party. Right. Like, yeah, it, exactly. It, it can be you're right. I was totally wrong and I'm sorry for what I did. And like I deserve death and I'm put to death. Right. Uh, now, if you do have a party who just like cannot get it into their heads that this is a very bad person, uh, be prepared to double down on like the big evil thing that you did. Yeah. You know, like. <laughs> You're like, aha, I have killed your friend. And they're like, you know, I just feel like 
if we talk to them <laughs> they could be saved <laughs> i just betrayed 60 percent of existence <laughs> i really feel like maybe if we resurrect him it would be good <laughs> so gonna... if you really want to drive home that like uh yeah you could try to save them but they're definitely going to betray you when you put them in jail like double down on it you know like they they had a contingency plan and and great like one of your families is dead now you know yeah just keep in mind it doesn't always work because batman still won't kill the joker (laughs) yeah yeah i mean yeah even after the joker kills poor old jason todd poor Uh, poor jason todd or um what's her name the killing joke that one yeah what's her name barbara gordon that's it poor barbara gordon although she rose like a phoenix on the internet to become oracle who's cool i yeah i don't know enough of this <laughs> i just know that the killing joke had a really bad event a moral event horizon and i don't actually even know what it is it's bad i, I knew it's it was bad. it's uh inspector gordon's inspector commissioner gordon i don't even know the characters <laughs> yes yeah it's, it's inspector batman. gordon and it's commissioner gadget okay get this okay, straight. okay good yeah yeah <laughs> So when Batman defeats Claw, does he put them in jail? <laughs> but it's not actually Claw. It's just a Claw attached to a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, it's really interesting that you bring up Killing Joke because that's one of my problems with it is that, like, Joker completely crosses my moral event horizon in, in that comic. And I'm just like, why aren't you killing him? Just kill him. I, I mean, But, you know, Batman doesn't do that. Yeah, I, I think... I mean, the problematic nature of that one is just that it crosses the event horizon for what people are willing to read and pay money for, right? So there's like kind of a meta problem with the killing joke of of people are like, this doesn't need to be a story. At us. Come on, people. At us. (laughs) Yeah, at me. (laughs) Somebody who doesn't even know the plot of the killing joke and only knows the meta commentary around it. (laughs) At me. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So how about for PCs? Because you're going to have a little less narrative control uh, when it comes to your player characters. Yeah, like who knows when other people are going to say, whoa, 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 that crosses my line and now I have to kill you in your sleep. Uh, Just remember that morally repugnant actions are so much easier to work into your backstory. So like I've talked before about my favorite character that I've ever played was my 4E character, Solomon the Stag, who was a terrible, terrible person prior to level one. Yep. Uh, And, you know, now he's kind of sort of redeeming himself. I mean, he's still awful, but like his actions are good. Just in the past, he's murdered a bunch of people. But not enough to be a genocide. Well, he's now on the side of the angels, literally, because he's being forced to be, because this whole backstory was that he's being geshed to be a good person. So that was sort of like, oh, here's why we're not punishing you. Like, this is your penance already. Oh, okay, okay. You're not actually becoming a good person. You're just not allowed to be bad anymore. That was exactly it. <laughs> I was like, how can I be a huge jerk but still play someone who's lawful good? Right. <laughs> so um, so warlock patrons are another example of this where, you know, typically making a deal with the devil is a rather repug- repugnant action. Um, but if you do it in your backstory as part of level one and getting that warlock patron, then we kind of look the other way. Yeah. And I mean, half the reason people pick fiend patrons is that it's really fun to walk the line with a character you know like we're role-playing one of the reasons that we like doing this this hobby is that you can do things that you don't do in real life for some people that's smashing down doors and for other people it's like kind of being like morally gray and like not a good person yeah so you do really want to keep tabs on what it is that 
the other party members will accept. You know, like, it's actually fine to be a murder hobo if the whole party is full of murder hobos. Mm -hmm. Yep, and a little bit less so if the whole party is not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, that. that's the the problems that people always say, like, oh, there's one murder hobo in the party, you know? Um, Yeah, that's a huge problem. You really need to tone it down so that the rest of the party doesn't... uh, make sure that you stop doing that by murdering you. Right. So you do want to you want to make sure that you're not needlessly antagonizing other people in the party. And you know, it's it's kind of fun maybe a little to like chide the paladin or or banter a little bit with like the neutral good cleric, but you don't want to you don't want to piss them off. You don't want to piss off the character and you don't want to piss off the other player who's just sort of like tired of having the story revolve around your antics. Yeah. But you do want like feel free to test the boundaries. You know, you do need to figure out what it is that they're okay with. That doesn't necessarily mean like, are you okay with me stabbing people as you stab someone? Have conversations. Yeah, I mean that's that's an important thing. Like because it it can be very difficult in a way because you're you're talking about subordinating your agency to the greater group um or one person objecting to somebody else and trying to restrict their agency, right? So like if I say all right, well, I'm going to rob the church before we leave town. Like, the natural inkling of the better-natured characters in the group is going to be like, we aren't going to let you do that, right? Like, like we're not going to continue to associate with somebody who is robbing churches. Like, that's not what we do. And so you end up in this issue of, like, me playing my character is now in direct conflict with what you're doing um, and you're crossing that line, like you need to have a conversation above the table to say like, okay, are you really doing this? And do we really want to deal with these consequences or are you not going to do that? Or are you going to do it underhanded or hidden or, or whatever? Right. Um, and as a group, are we all agreeing that we're going to kind of structure our session in this way or structure our campaign in this way? Yeah, I think our group has done a pretty nice job. Like in the game that you're running right now, the uh, Dynasty Unwarranted campaign, like everyone at the table knows that Doc is doing heretical things, which most is, people in the party are pretty sure he's doing heretical things. They but just... don't don't have like proof that they can't like explain away somehow, right? Right, right. Like they they have not yet been forced to confront that. Like, oh, undeniably. Uh, Doc is doing heretical things. Right. So there's this dramatic irony where the players know and the characters have an inkling, um, but this is still happening. If it occurred in the open, like the party wouldn't work at all together because like we couldn't actually function. Right. You would all be heretics by letting him do this. So right. Those of you who are loyalists, of which there are numerous members of the party who are truly loyalist imperials, like would have to put him to death, burn the heretic. And I mean, you know. It's fun knowing that that's coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's especially fun for Cameron, who is playing Doc. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's also the chance that he his betrayal is like murdering all of us or summoning a terrible demon. And like, that's our big battle. <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> um, I also think it's, it's interesting to remember that um, the event horizon, especially when dealing with other players, does not necessarily need to be good versus evil. It can be like a law chaos thing. It can be what the the characters have decided is something that is important to them. Like uh, if you're in a mercenary group, it, it could be that like it's fine to to kill anyone who's not a member of the group, but you don't go back on a contract. Right. Uh, or or in uh, the Imperial Guard, like you don't retreat. 
you know that cross that crosses the imperial guards moral event horizon you are okay to kill you are an enemy if you retreat well yeah <laughs> you are an depending. enemy if you retreat in front of a commissar <laughs> <laughs> okay cross crosses the commissar's event right. horizon <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but notably you know it's pretty rare in 40k that commissars are shot by their own men <laughs> yeah that's interesting you think it, it would happen more it's actually not <laughs> <laughs> this, this i mean percentage wise it's low but given the numbers yeah <laughs> a, there's a culling uh, right a billion commissars across the galaxy die every day shot by their own men right <laughs> <laughs> and then if you are sort of uh playing underhanded when dealing with the uh, the rest of the party um even if it's dramatically ironic just keep in mind that you you can't necessarily expect that you're going to be able to plan out either a redemption arc or a betrayal arc for your character because you don't necessarily know when that the big reveal is going to come, right? Because if you're hiding things all the time, hiding these actions, um, it could just be that like a poor die roll on your part or a really good one on someone else's means that you got caught and then that could just be it, you know? <laughs> like you got caught uh, with that terrible demonic ritual that you've been hiding from everyone because like your stealth check was terrible. Uh, now the jig is up. Yeah, and guess what? I guess they're they're probably going to kill you. But I mean, wondering if that's going to happen was part of the fun. So like, enjoy that. Yeah, and know that like it's going to come, and don't like get whiny if if people are like, oh, we we have to kill you now. Well, so it's interesting because because that sort of hidden potential for betrayal was in the Morning Glory campaign was the definition of Bastion's character, right? Like to the end. We kind of all knew he was evil. We just didn't know how evil he was. So his betrayal was not a surprise. Uh, it was just a confirmation. But the flip side was true for Brand, where everybody, to the end, insisted he must be evil because he was an Inquisitor. And then he held firm and wished the party to success <laughs> in the in the final battle. Uh, hey, what's uh, Brand's position on the uh, shifter genocide? It was an oversight. <laughs> <laughs> clerical issue it's bureaucratic it stuff yes it got cleric and paladin issue yes yeah. <laughs> it was before his time yeah, good thing yeah <laughs> look i'm not saying that the church of the silver flame isn't flawless what i'm saying is that mistakes have been made i mean there were you know good people on both sides it was the right thing to do at the time <laughs> <laughs> not so much for the shifters but you know it was you know. the wrong thing with retrospect i ah <laughs> uh, uh, yes i was lawful good in retrospect right <laughs> listen we got rid of a lot of evil shifters too <laughs> yeah pretty much all of them yeah <laughs> uh no i don't think brand was okay with the shifter genocide i think brand saw that as like a as a black mark I mean, he doesn't get points for that. That's good. That's, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's like, but but what can you do, right? Like, it's a it's a faith based organization, and he's serving a literal deity. So, what can you do? You know, the only reason the shifter genocide happened is because the shifters got access to time travel and kept going back in time to try to kill the keeper. <laughs> Yeah, and actually, the was like, oh, we got to get kill all these shifters. Y- you know, I mean, <laughs> it wasn't the sole factor, uh, but Brand did systematically dismantle the Church of the Silver Flame and rebuild it. So, like, you know, it wasn't really up for debate. He was pretty against it when I reconsider his full course of action. Yeah, it was Vatican Three. It was good. It was yeah, good. exactly. <laughs> 
Uh, dear. Do you hear that, Ishan? It's it's the sound of one genocide. Okay, one. I guess we're going to have to roll up a few more characters, so let's move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sends Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building Sub-Zero. A refrigerator? Actually, this is a character from the video game Mortal Kombat. Strange that this was not your suggestion because you're typically the video game guy. Uh, True. Although I did actually play Mortal Kombat. Well, you played Mortal Kombat 2. Yeah. I also played Mortal I think, Kombat 2. I think I played some Mortal Kombat 1 now that I think about it because I'm very old. I uh, I rented Mortal Kombat 1. <laughs> My neighbor owned Mortal Kombat 2. <laughs> was, so I was played it a Mortal Kombat video? 2. It was definitely a blockbuster video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so side by side, it was clear Mortal Kombat 2 is the better game. I mean, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like uh, Mortal Kombat 2 Annihilation, the movie was far superior to the first Mortal Kombat movie. I, I don't know how you know that. Uh, I saw both in theaters. I don't know why you did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So who is Sub Zero other than a character from Mortal Kombat? Well, so in the game, um, he's descended from Cryomancer, so he's got control over ice and cold. And of course, being in a fighting video game, he's a skilled hand-to-hand combatant. Yeah, his uh, his big ability is that he uh, he can throw a ball of ice at his enemies that causes them to freeze, uh, which then allows him to walk up and uh, uppercut them repeatedly. Yeah, uh, see, he also shoots a bigger ball of ice, uh, which goes faster and freezes them a little longer. Uh, he can turn the ground beneath his opponent's feet into ice so that they slip and fall. Uh, and then as his animality, he can turn into a polar bear and maul them to death. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, yeah. He also did a thing. Uh, one of his fatalities was like freezing someone solid, right? And then punching them and they shatter. They shatter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So how do we do this with old Sub-Zero? The build is Open Hand Monk 10, Arctic Druid 9. Arcana Cleric 1. All right. So I tried to do four elements, Monk, right? Because it just makes sense thematically, but it's just really bad, especially if you're trying to limit yourself to one element. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just really, really bad. So we'll, we'll figure we'll just get good at the martial arts instead. Yeah. Um, you know, you get martial arts, uh, flurry, extra attack. You get stunning fist, which is a nice way uh, to show that he's frozen someone. Mm-hmm. Stun is a super good effect. Uh, it's short term, but so is Sub-Zero's Freeze, so it fits quite nicely. You get Evasion, and then from open hand, you get uh, an at-will prone, which you can definitely flavor as um, uh, forming ice underneath someone's feet. Uh, you can also make it so they can't take any reactions, which, of course, is going to be similar to freezing them. Now, from Druid, we're focusing on a little more uh, ranged ice attacks as well as, uh, of course, our animality. So we'll get uh, Frostbite, Shape Water, and Ice Knife. You also get Hold Person, Sleet Storm, which creates some difficult terrain uh, in an area, and Ice Storm, which will batter people with large chunks of ice. The selection of Arctic means that you also get access to the Slow Spell, which of course you're going to flavor as Freezing Them, and Cone of Cold. And recall that if you reduce someone to zero hit points with Cone of Cold, they freeze solid. 
Now, we choose one level of a cleric here because the first level of Arcana Cleric lets us choose two wizard cantrips. But they count as cleric spells, which means that they are based off of wisdom instead of using something like Magic Initiate to get them where you need to use Intelligence. Because you're picking Ray of Frost, uh, which lets you uh, slow someone's speed. Of course, it freezes them a little bit more. It's kind of, kind of, kind yeah, of a theme it's to a this really, character. Really repetitive theme, yeah. <laughs> You've got a lot of ways to freeze. As for leveling order, I would go. I would take Monk to five. Uh, so you have your extra attack and your stunning fist. Um, go ahead and knock out your Arcana Cleric just so you've got uh, your Ray of Frost at will. And then I would take Druid all the way to nine before finishing out Monk. All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about targeting PCs. And in the character creation forge? We are building the homing missile. Well, that's it for episode 154 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. 